All right, take your Bibles and turn not to Genesis chapter 49. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Kevin will pick up in Genesis 49 next week, and he'll be finishing that study over the next uh, two Sundays. And then we are going to begin after that um, a study of the book of Ephesians. Um, This is an introduction this morning. I hope this gets you excited for what's coming in a few weeks. Um, We studied through the book of Ephesians probably about 18 years ago here, and I thought this is a good time to go back to it. Um, And I'll explain a little bit of that as we go through um, this introduction, but I think it's a good time for the church at large to consider what Paul was saying to to this group of believers. And so I just want to introduce us to this study this morning, and that way you'll you'll have this already fresh in your mind uh, to come back to it in a few weeks, and then we'll start digging in week by week by week. So feel free um, over the next few weeks to grab your Bible on your own and start reading through uh, these six chapters just to re-familiarize yourselves with what uh, Paul has said to this group of believers. Okay, join me in a word of prayer and we will ask for God's help in our study uh, this morning. Well, Father, you have brought us here this morning and hopefully already on our mind is this last song that we sang. Um, Praise to you. Praise to you, praise to your Son, praise to your Holy Spirit. Um, That's what you deserve. You deserve that from every human being uh, on this planet. You especially deserve it from your people because you have recreated us. You have given us new hearts that see what makes you worthy of praise, new hearts which want to give you praise and want to gather together uh, to do that. And so we've come this morning for that chief purpose, to exalt you. To, to adore you, to magnify your name for who you are and for what you have done. Now, we struggle with that. Uh, you know us perfectly. You know us intimately. And even though we have new hearts, we still have that old flesh, that old man who was not regenerated, that old man who does what it has always done. The flesh will continue to do what it does until the moment it is put down finally. And so uh, it doesn't want to praise It doesn't want to worship someone else. It doesn't want to submit. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. It it, it naturally is selfish, self-centered, self-serving. And so uh, there will be a fight this morning for attention, a fight between your Holy Spirit and our flesh, a fight between your Holy Spirit and maybe other beings, other spirit beings that are in this world and maybe in this room this morning. Only you know that for sure. But we rejoice in the fact that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We also know your Holy Spirit is stronger than our old man. So we make that request of you this morning that you will overpower everything that stands against the truth, that you will capture every mind and heart in this room this morning so that we can listen, not just with our physical ears, but that we can listen spiritually and understand and respond appropriately. Father, I pray for your help personally. Um, There's no way any man can appropriately speak on your behalf. We are not worthy. We are not uh, capable. We don't have the power. We we just don't have the ability to to, to truly say, thus saith the Lord and get it right. But I pray that your Holy Spirit will give me the ability this morning just to present your word to the best of my ability, get the interpretation right, Don't stray, don't wander, just lay out what we have in your word before us. And then we'll trust you 
We trust you to do the work that brings glory to your son and joy to your people. That's what we want. So I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So here's the question. What is the church? Or more appropriately, what is a church? Many of you grew up in church, a church. Probably all of us have been members of different churches throughout our lives. You picked this church. At some point in time in the past, you decided, I'm going to go down to that, that, that Rosemont Baptist Church, and you're still here to this day. You made that decision for a reason. You made that decision because you thought you knew what a church is or what a church should be. Where did you get that idea? What were you looking for in a church? Seems like a lot of people today are asking what a church should be. People are constantly deciding this church is not what a church should be, and so then they move over to find another one that they think is more on point with what a church should be. And There are plenty of churches to choose from these days. There's a whole new wave of new church plants and old church revitalizations. You wouldn't believe the number of new ones or revitalized, that's the word, revitalized churches that are popping up today. Why is that? Well, if you're aware, it's hard to miss a trend, a recent trend in American society. It used to be even lost people saw the benefit of, saw a benefit, I guess, of God and the local church. Most lost people would admit, I need something God has to offer. I probably need something a church has to offer. And so even lost people would attend a worship service on a Sunday morning if they were invited. If they were your friend, your family member, and you invited them, chances were pretty high that they might come, come with you sometimes. They might even go on their own without even being invited. Occasionally, a lost person would mention God in a conversation. Lost people would even pray before they ate their meals, and they would pray when there were hard times going on in their lives. And a lot of them would at least send their kids to church because they, they, they assumed, well, it's good for my children even if it's too late for me. So they would send their kids to church even if they didn't go themselves. But today things have changed. It's not like that anymore. The majority of the population in our nation today sees no need of God or the church. They see no benefit in God or the church. In fact, many people today see God and the church as a negative, the opposite of beneficial. They even blame the church for a lot of the problems that are going on in society today. Most people won't trust their kids to the church because of scandals that have taken place in some churches and religious groups around the world. So the result of all of that is that church membership and even church attendance is decreasing, which leaves a lot of people in the church asking the question, what should the church do about that? And some have decided the solution to this problem is to change the church to reach our changing world. What the church was is not going to be effective for what the world is today. 
That, that's the reasoning. That's the logic. So we need to give the world a, a, a new brand of church. And some of the church has been trying to reinvent itself to stay relevant to the world because of this problem that they see going on today. Are they on to something? Is the local church something that is left to the hands of men to create and shape it as we see fit? Is that what the, the church is? Is the local church of the people, by the people, and for the people? Is the church something that we Christians can and should adjust to appeal to a changing world around us? These are big questions, questions that are being asked today. And I would argue, I would submit to you that the world isn't changing. It's exactly what it has always been. It still has the same depraved heart that we've all inherited from our father, Adam. The world is still rebellious. It is still godless. The world is still idolatrous. The people of the world are still selfish. The world is just manifesting what it's always been, maybe in some new bolder ways and with some new tools, but it really hasn't changed at all. So then the, the question is, why would we try to change the church when the hearts of men haven't really changed? And on top of that, does the church even have the right to do that anyway? Well, when we look at God's word, we find some pretty clear answers to that question. When we go to God's word, we hear Jesus saying, I will build my church, right? Very clear words from Christ. In God's word, we find Christ telling his apostles, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Very clear in the Word of God. In the Word of God, we find Christ's apostles saying, at least one of them saying, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's all that mean? It means that Latin phrase, sola scriptura, is accurate. You know what that means? You ever heard sola scriptura before? It means Scripture alone. It means God's inspired Word is the sole rule for our faith and our practice. God alone, in His Word alone, should tell us what to believe and what to do, both as individual disciples and as congregations of disciples. And He does tell us in His Word what to believe and what to do. Scripture gives us countless words of Christ to his apostles, those men that he trained himself and sent out himself to preach the gospel and then to organize and lead those initial groups of people who believed that gospel message. Scripture includes that whole book of Acts, that record of the early spread of that gospel throughout the world and how those apostles organized those congregations of believers into local churches and towns and cities all around the world. 
Scripture is full of letters written from those apostles to congregations to teach them what to believe and what to do with what they believed and to correct them where they were wrong. We've even seen in Sunday school with Kevin's lesson through the book of Revelation, we have seen that in that revelation, Jesus gave to his apostle John a a message to seven churches in Asia. Jesus himself making observations about those local churches, positive things, negative things, compliments, rebukes. So besides the fact that Christ has the only authority to create and shape churches, besides that fact, we don't need to. It's not necessary to develop new plans for how to do church or how to do church better. The Lord has told us in his word all that we need to know about his will for a local church. What's our responsibility? Very, very simple. Just find it, believe it, and obey it. That's it. He's spoken. He's given us all that we need to build churches. He actually builds them. But to do what a church is supposed to do, he's told us everything. Find out what he said, believe it, and obey it. And that approach is guaranteed to glorify him. It is guaranteed to edify the people that make up every local church, and it is guaranteed to address the lost world in the way that the Lord wills that to be done. That's what we're after here. God's will for the church, God's glory through the church. So, said all that to say this, given the constant state of the world, it never changes, it might look a little different on the outside, but it never changes. And given that constant state, given the current trends in the church trying to address the state of the world, and given the dangerous temptations that are always there for the church to follow those trends, I think it is a great time for us as a congregation to check our moorings as a local church. What's our foundation? What do we stand on? What are we all about? What are we supposed to be doing? Again, we we went through this some 18, 19 years ago. It's been long enough where maybe we need a review of this as we watch the world around us and the church around us. So today we are beginning this study that I'm entitling A Church Built by God. And it is very simply a verse-by-verse study of the the letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus. And let me make this very clear. We are not doing this study so that we can identify everything wrong that every other congregation is doing. That is not the point of this at all. And if that's what you find yourself doing, then maybe we need to have a discussion. Maybe you need to have a discussion with the Lord and and get back to the Word of God. We're not trying to point out the problems in other churches. We're just trying to make sure that we're getting it right in our own. Okay? Now, I'm excited for this study. Not just because this is my favorite book in the Bible. You, You would probably expect that, right? I'm just excited because what we have in front of us is is an incredible gift that will increase not just our knowledge. It will, it should, but not just our knowledge. What we're going to find in this letter to this church should build our unity as a local church. It should increase our joy as individual believers and as a congregation together. It should increase our motivation, our motivation to live based on what we're seeing and learning and being reminded of here. And all of that ends up bringing more glory to Jesus Christ. So 
I'm excited about this study, even though I have to wait another few weeks to get back to it. I'm excited even to begin this morning. We're just barely going to get started. It's just going to be like we're taking the first step on a long walk this morning. And again, we're going to dive in in a few weeks after Kevin is finished with the book of Genesis. So let me very first of all give you what you're going to see over and over again in the months ahead. And that is a very simple outline to our study or for our study. Two main points. This is what we're going to break this entire letter up into. This letter lends itself to being broken up that way. But the very first point is what a church is. And that's going to cover the first three chapters of this letter. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Paul is telling these Ephesian believers what a church is. Okay? Essence. Nature. What makes it a church. Okay? The second point we're going to look at is what a church is to do. Chapter 4, verse 1, there's a verse there that's just like a hinge. It's just perfect, okay? Now that I've told you this, now go do this with it, is what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus. And so we're going to switch at that point from what a church is to what a church is to do. It's going to get a lot more practical. Since we are who we are, since we are what we are, since God has built us into a congregation like this, then this is how we should respond to him. This is the way we should live our lives as this congregation, okay? So, you you should be in the book of Ephesians. Join me in the first couple of verses here in Paul's greeting for our first look at what a church is, a church built by God. What is it, okay? Verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus. That's as far as we'll get this morning. Now, what is the link between the Apostle Paul and this group of people that he's writing to? Paul calls himself here an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Apostle is a word that you hear from Christians, you hear out there in the church world, you'll hear it all the time. You buy books off of a a Christian bookstore shelf, and you'll see the word apostle. What is it? If you had to define that word for somebody this morning, what would you say an apostle is? Well, very simply, an apostle is someone who is sent out by someone else as their agent, as their messenger. So, Billy, I am sending you out to go speak on my behalf. Billy is now an apostle, okay? So, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was sent out by Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sent the Apostle Paul out as his agent, as one of his messengers. Now, if you've been around the church very long, if you've been in the Word of God very long, we remember how that happened, right? We kind of know Paul's story. We've been through it so many times in so many different ways. We, We kind of remember how he became one of Jesus Christ's apostles. Just like most other Jews, Paul was convinced that Jesus was a lying, blaspheming heretic. Paul, before he became an apostle, was glad that this Jesus of Nazareth got it. On that cross, he got what he deserved. He should have been executed. If the Jews didn't do it, somebody else should have because he was a liar, claiming to be the Son of God when he wasn't. And so Paul was one of many, many, many Jews who were glad that Jesus got what he got on that cross, and then Paul had dedicated his life to what he thought was serving God 
by persecuting everybody who was following that, that heretic. So Paul would travel around trying to, to wreak havoc in the early church or to individual followers of this Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what he was doing when he was on his way to Damascus that day. He was headed there with authority from the chief priests back in Jerusalem that if he found any of these followers of Jesus of Nazareth, he was going to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial. But before he ever reached Damascus, something crazy happened to him, right? Jesus showed up. Jesus, having already ascended to the right hand of the Father, appeared to Paul on that road to Damascus that day and stopped him in his tracks. Blinded him, blinded him physically. Paul couldn't see a thing when Jesus showed up in all of his glory. Couldn't see a thing physically, but at the same time, Jesus opened his spiritual eyes to see what he had never seen before. What was that? Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. And immediately that day on that road, Paul believed in Jesus. Several days later, he had gone on to Damascus, and several days later, Paul got his new marching orders. What were they? To preach and teach what he now believed, that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one anointed and sent by the Father to be the Savior and the King of God's people. So Paul started acting as an apostle right away, went straight to the synagogue in Damascus and started to preach that message to the Jews who met there on a regular basis. And as you read from Paul after that, Paul always looked back on that day as the day he became an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yes, it was after the other apostles. He was born out of due time, as he, as he said himself, but he was still sent out by the same one sent out by Jesus with the same work to preach the very same message. He was just sent out at a different place and a different time. Paul's role was no less than Peter's and John's and James' roles. Paul had no less standing before Jesus. Paul had no less authority from Jesus. He was sent out as an apostle just like the rest of those who were recognized as apostles of Jesus Christ. Now again, here in verse 1, Paul says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And when you know Paul's story, you come to the conclusion, well, yes, it was by the will of God. It wasn't by Paul's will. That's clear, right? I mean, when Jesus came to Paul, what was Paul doing? Well, he wasn't preaching the truth about Jesus. He wasn't preaching that Jesus was the Christ. He was preaching that Jesus was a liar. And he wasn't trying to help the people, the followers of Jesus Christ, he was trying to arrest the followers of Jesus Christ. So it wasn't Paul's will to become an apostle of Jesus Christ. It wasn't even the church's will for Paul to become an apostle of Jesus Christ. They were scared to death of him. They didn't want anything to do with him. They, they wanted him to stay as far away from them as he could possibly stay. And so Paul makes it very clear that the truth is his apostleship was by God's will. The Son of God himself came to Paul and made him an apostle at that point in time. And it's in that role as an apostle of Jesus Christ that Paul got hooked up with these people in Ephesus, right? Now, think back with me a year or, or two to our study in the book of 1 Corinthians and, and also 2 Corinthians. We learned there that Paul spent approximately 18 months in the city of Corinth acting as an apostle. 
And the very first place he went there was to the Jewish synagogue. And he, and he taught in the Jewish synagogue what he always taught, that Jesus is the Christ. What happened there was that some Jews believed him, some, but others didn't. And they ran him out so that he just moved next door into a house next to the synagogue and kept on teaching the same thing there. During his 18 months in Corinth, many Jews and Gentiles believed his message. They believed that Jesus is the Christ, and they trusted in Jesus as the Christ. While he was in Corinth, something else happened. He met that couple. Remember their names? Aquila and Priscilla. We don't hear those in our... Uh, in our American families these days, but Aquila and Priscilla, they were fellow Jews, and they were also fellow tent makers. And they became fast friends with Paul and co-workers with Paul, both in tent making. They, they worked together making tents to support themselves, but they also became co-workers in the ministry while they were all there. They were so close that when Paul left Corinth after 18 months, Aquila and Priscilla left with him. They went along. They didn't want to stay in Corinth without him. They went along with him. And what was their first stop? Ephesus. They got on a boat not far from Corinth, and they started sailing to the east, and they stopped, and they went straight to Ephesus. And that's where Paul once again did what he always did when he went into a new city. Went straight to the Jewish synagogue, and he started preaching to the Jews there that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the Jews in that synagogue in Ephesus were much more receptive than the ones that he had met over in Corinth. And as Paul preached and taught to them there in the synagogue, they begged him that he would stay there with them and continue to teach this this subject and, and, and these doctrines that he was giving to them there in the synagogue. But Paul had in his mind at that point in time that he wanted to get to Jerusalem. There was an upcoming feast, and he wanted to be there in time for the feast, so he would not stay in Ephesus He left there pretty quickly, and he left alone. This time, Priscilla and Aquila didn't go with him. They stayed there in Ephesus, but they weren't alone there in Ephesus. Another name popped up right after Paul left. Another name popped up that you've heard before, the name Apollos. Recognize that name? Apollos came to Ephesus right after Paul left, and Apollos kind of stepped into Paul's role. He was a preacher, very bold preacher, and so he was preaching in the synagogue, just like Paul, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the difference between Apollos and Paul at that point in time was, Apollos was green, and he needed some tweaking on some of his doctrines, and so Aquila and Priscilla kind of took him to the side and discipled him a little bit on some of these, these particular doctrinal issues so that he could then go out and continue to preach the word and preach it even more accurately than he already was. That's what he did. Then Apollos left. Paul comes back from the feast in Jerusalem. Paul comes back to Ephesus and kind of picked up right where he left off. He went to the synagogue. And again, as he preached, some believed him. There were some Jews. There were some Gentile proselytes to Judaism who believed what Paul was saying about Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the Christ. But after about three months preaching there, the unbelieving Jews did what they always did. They raised so much cane, they put so much pressure on Paul and the other believers that he had to leave the synagogue. And so he just moved to a local school and started teaching in that school every day. And his ministry from that school was so powerful and it was so effective that Luke recorded 
that everyone who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord while Paul was there preaching. Everyone who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean they all believed it. And it also doesn't mean that Paul preached to every person in Asia personally, himself, directly, face to face. What it means is his teaching and his preaching in Ephesus was kind of like the driving force that was pushing believers out all over Asia so that believers were preaching and teaching everywhere else and believers were sharing the word of the Lord everywhere else. But, but it was all flowing out from Paul's ministry in Ephesus. That's how strong it was. That's how powerful and effective it was while he was in Ephesus. There's other evidences of the, the effectiveness too. Paul was working miracles. This is the place where, and you still hear some of this fake today, but this is the place where Paul would have a handkerchief or an apron, and they would send that handkerchief or apron to someone who was sick somewhere else, and when they received that handkerchief or apron, they were healed, literally healed because of the power that was going out from Paul at that point in time. Paul was also casting out demons, and I mentioned I don't know when it was, maybe last week or week before last, that there are some things in the Word of God that, that make me laugh. And this is where one of those things took place. Remember, Paul was casting out demons, and it was so obvious, and he got so famous for it, that there were these, there was these, these guys by the name of the sons of Sceva. I guess Dad was named Sceva, and they were his sons. They were so jealous of Paul's ability to cast out demons that they tried it. So they found a guy who was possessed by demons, and they said, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. You remember what happened? The demon spoke through the possessed man and said, well, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then he caused that possessed man to jump on the sons of Sceva and beat them up so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. Wouldn't you love to have been there to have seen that? But this is what was going on, all associated with Paul's presence in Ephesus here and the power that God was giving him to preach the word and, and give signs that testified to the fact that this was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul's ministry was so effective in this town that after about two and a half years of ministry, he was doing damage to the idol business, the idol-making business. And so the, the, the Ephesians were like every other um, Gentile territory back then. They believed in all these different gods and goddesses. Well, Ephesus had its own, like, patron goddess, the great goddess Diana. And so men would make money off of that. And they would carve statues of Diana and sell those statues and make money for themselves. Well, as Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are more and more people believing, wait a second, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one true God, and we're turning to follow him. And as they turned to follow Jesus, what did they do at the same time? They turned away from their idols. They turned away from Diana. No reason to have those statues anymore. And so the businessmen, the, the, the statue, statue whittlers, got irate over this. And they stirred up a, a, a very violent protest in the city of Ephesus. They were looking for Paul, but they couldn't get their hands on Paul, couldn't find him. So they found other Christians and terrorized them and beat them up. Well, the Christians in Ephesus were so concerned for Paul's safety that they convinced him to leave town. He didn't really want to. But they convinced him it's not safe for you to be here anymore. And so Paul left for his own safety. And he never returned to Ephesus, never came back again. It was one other time not long after this that he met the elders of the church in Ephesus 
somewhere else, but Paul did not come back to the city of Ephesus again after this. So this letter that we have and that we're starting to look at here was probably written by Paul just a few years later as he was under house arrest in Rome for the first time. So that's the first time he was going to have to appear before Caesar and hear whether he would be released or whether he would be killed. And while he was there for two, two and a half years, he was writing letters to churches. And this letter was probably written to the church at Ephesus at that time. Okay, so why all that history? Why go through that whole review before we even get started here in, in really in verse 1? I did it so that when we hear how Paul greets these people, when we hear in verse 1 how Paul addresses this group and how he describes them, we now will know, we will remember, we will understand that this is coming from someone who knows what the Lord's work looks like. He's not guessing. He didn't read a book. This is a guy that was sent out by Jesus Christ himself to do what Jesus Christ wanted to be done to build churches, to organize churches, to influence churches, to teach churches. Paul knew it. This is why he was sent out by the Lord. And I also wanted to do this to remind us that what Paul writes to these people and about these people comes after years of being with them personally. Paul didn't just hear about them secondhand. He didn't just get a letter from them one time. Paul had lived with them personally for about two and a half years, lived with them, worshipped with them. He was persecuted with them. He watched them. He served them. He served with them. So Paul knows them. And when Paul describes these people, he's describing what he saw from their lives not just what they professed with their mouths, not just what someone told him that they professed with their mouths. Paul is writing what he saw from their lives over a period of about two and a half years. And that is very important for us to know. Because when Paul describes these people, Paul is describing a church. Not just this church, but... Every church, or every true church that's built by God. Okay? Keep that in mind. It's, it's, it's so important that we have that background to appreciate what we're hearing from the Apostle Paul about these people. This is a description of a church built by God. Now, I keep saying the word church, and we have to be careful with this because that's a word that we get very sloppy with sometimes. So we will ask somebody, do you go to church? We ask each other, how'd you like church yesterday? Or I I call and tell Valerie, I got a plumber coming down here to do some work at the church. See, we're throwing that word around, using it in certain ways that when you read a letter like this, it probably shouldn't be used that way. We use that word as if the church is a building or as if church is an event that takes place at a building. Well, the actual word for church is the word ecclesia. means very little to you, but if I could put it on a board in front of you, I could show you that, that is a, it is a compound word. There's actually two words put together as one, ecclesia. And it is describing people who have been called out from something or somewhere that they have been. 
called out, a congregation, an assembly, a group of called out people. That's what a church literally means by definition, okay? And that's who Paul is writing to here in Ephesus. He's not writing to all the citizens who live in Ephesus, is he? No. He's not even writing to all the Gentiles or all the Jews or all the athletes that live in Ephesus. That's not who he's writing to. He's writing to the church, and he describes this group of people, this church, as who? Verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. You may have different English translation, but, but New King James says to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's the group. That's the congregation. It's a bunch of people who are saints and have been brought together as saints. Now, there's another word that gets abused, right? Primarily because of the Catholics. The word saint gets thrown away around and used in ways that it's not meant to be used. You know, the Catholics teach that a, a saint is a special Christian. A saint is someone who is better than most other Christians. He's, he's more pious or she's more pious or they, they do more good works, better works. They even perform miracles. And because of all of that, a saint is to be revered among Christians, among the rest of the church. And a saint is even put in a special position by God after death to be able to keep doing good things for the church even though they're not living there with the church anymore. Unfortunately, all across the world, that's the definition of a saint that is known by so many people. But notice, Paul doesn't use that word that way here. Paul's not using this word saint for just some of the special Christians in Ephesus, some who were better than the rest in life and had already died and gone on to, to be with the Lord at this point in time. No, Paul is using this word for the whole group. All who were alive and living in Ephesus at that time, Paul is calling all of them saints. So what does it mean? I mean, what is he saying about all of these people in that congregation? Well, the word saint comes from the same word that we get the word holy. Same root word if you look it up. What's holy mean? It means separated, set apart. Set apart from what is common, lowly, impure, and set apart to the opposite, to what is pure, to what is sacred, what is divine. Now, that sounds kind of like our definition of a church, right? A church is a group that's called out, set apart from what they were or where they were. And folks, that's what a true church is. It is a group of people who have been called out a group of people who have been set apart by God from what they used to be, from what everyone else is at that point in time, and set apart to what God is making them and using them to be, a congregation of saints. That's a true church, not a building, not an event at a building, not a religious gathering, but a group set apart from what they used to be to what God is making them to be and wants them to be. It is a congregation of saints, okay? Now, back to Paul's relationship with these Ephesian saints. Again, Paul was with them for about two and a half years, living there. He didn't come and go. He stayed there all that time, living with this group of saints, watching them. So Paul knew what they had been before. Paul knew what had been 
preached to them, and Paul knew what they had become. So Paul knew some of these people were Jews. They were Jews. They were raised to believe that their place with God was certain. Why? Because of their lineage from Abraham. They're Abraham's descendants. Abraham's blood and Isaac's and Jacob's flows through their veins. And so they believed that their place of God, place with God was certain based on that lineage and then made even more strong by their obedience to the Mosaic law and the traditions of the elders. Even though their obedience was, was hit and miss and come and go and just good some days and bad the other days, I guess it was their quasi-obedience to the law and the traditions that made them feel even more secure that their place was right with God. They were Jews. All of this also made them arrogant in who they were and what they did. When a Jew looked around, because of what they saw as their place with God, then they looked down on everyone else, especially the Gentiles, especially the Samaritans, those half-breed Jew Gentiles, those those people who were a mixture, right? They looked down on everybody else. And all of these Jews at one point in time had hated Jesus for his claim of being the Son of God, his claim of being Messiah. They all hated Jesus. But Paul remembered having been with them, and Paul remembered preaching the gospel to them. Paul knew that Apollos had preached the gospel to them too. Both of these men had shown those Jews from Scripture how the Messiah had to live, had to die, and had to rise from the dead. And guess what? Jesus did all of that. He matches all of it. He fulfills all of those prophecies from your your own scriptures. Lived, died, raised from the dead. Therefore, he is the promised Messiah. And as Paul had preached that message to these people, he got to watch as God called these Jews out. Called them out from their unbelief. He watched God break their hearts over the fact that they had rejected their own Messiah. I love the passage in Acts chapter 2 where Peter is preaching to all those Jews at Pentecost and he convinces them that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and Luke says they were cut to the heart. He said, what in the world are we going to do now? We killed our Messiah. And I think Paul witnessed this even in Ephesus in the synagogue as he would preach to these Jews and lay out the truth that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He lived righteously. He died and he was raised from the dead. Therefore, he is Messiah. And Paul watched as the Lord broke their hearts over that sin, over rejecting the one who is obviously their Messiah. Paul watched God set some of these Jews up now in opposition to the rest of their families set them up in opposition to their friends, to their own communities. Here are people now trusting in Jesus as the Savior for their sins. Not that they thought they were righteous anymore. We're sinners, and Jesus is the one to save us from our sins. And Paul watched them starting to worship Jesus as their king and to worship him with this community of hated Christians, even with Gentile Christians. Here's people who have abandoned their self-righteousness and they have become submissive to Jesus Christ and his teachings as their way of life. Paul saw all this with his own eyes. And he watched it, not for a day, not just listen to a, 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 a profession of faith and baptize them in a river somewhere. Paul watched this go on for months and for years. Not just their profession of faith. A life 
of faith in Jesus Christ. He saw that these people were clearly set apart by God, and in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1, faithful in Christ Jesus. And that doesn't mean that they did everything they were supposed to do. It doesn't mean that Paul watched them turn into sinless people. What it means is he saw them being faithful to keep believing and keep trusting in Christ alone. He watched the lives of these people become lives desperate for Jesus and devoted to Jesus. Paul had watched the radical transformation of these Jews into saints, set apart to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Others in this group were not Jews, they were Gentiles. They they had grown up in Ephesus, they they were not Abraham's bloodline, these were Gentile people. And as I said earlier, these are people who were raised to believe there were many gods and goddesses. Little g's, right? Gods and goddesses. And they believed that all of these gods and goddesses controlled different aspects of daily life. And so all of them needed to be recognized and they needed to be worshipped and they needed to be appeased to make sure that they were gaining the favor of these gods and goddesses or at least not losing the favor of these gods and goddesses. And like I said, the, the people in Ephesus had one particular goddess that was identifying with or they were identifying with this, this goddess and that was the great goddess Diana. The people who lived in Ephesus felt obligated to her. They felt indebted to her and devoted to her. They're very proud of her. But when Paul preached to these Gentiles the one true living God who created everything and displays His glory everywhere, the the God, the one God who deserves the worship and the gratitude and obedience of everyone, and He accepts all who repent and turn away from their gods and goddesses to worship Jesus as God alone, Paul watched something. He watched God call these Gentiles out of their idolatry. He watched God separate them from Diana and and, and cut them apart from their idol-worshiping family and friends to worship Jesus alone and even to worship Him with Jews. Those people who had looked down their noses at them in arrogance for so many years, now these Gentiles are worshiping Jesus alone with those Jewish believers as well. And Once again, Paul watched this for weeks and months and years. It's not just that he heard them make a profession of faith. He watched them live a life of faith in Jesus Christ. He saw these people are clearly set apart by God, and they are faithful, not sinless, Not perfect yet, but faithful to keep believing and trusting in Christ alone. Desperate for Jesus alone and devoted to Jesus alone. Paul watched the radical transformation of these Gentiles into saints as well. And folks, this is what a church built by God looks like. It is a church, a group, a congregation of people from all kinds of backgrounds, And they have been called out of those wrong backgrounds by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have been set apart from what they used to be. They have been set apart from what the rest of the world is. They've been set apart from the things that they used to depend on for their hope. Things like false religions, idols, self-righteousness the things of this world. All of these things 
people put their hope in. Oh, if I, if I just do this, if I just have that, if I just get this, then, then that will give me hope for the future and maybe even for eternity. And Paul is showing us that a, that a church is a congregation of people who have been set apart from that way of thinking, from those dependences, from those hopes, and they've been set apart to a life of faith in Jesus alone. A life that is desperate for what Jesus did for sinners. A life that is devoted to the glory of Jesus for having done what he did for sinners. A life, not just a profession. Paul described this life himself. Turn back just a couple of pages to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, very quickly. Here's a verse that you're, you're very familiar with. You've, you've seen it over and over again. But Paul is describing himself, and as we listen to how Paul describes himself, what we are hearing is, this is a saint, and it's this kind of a person, this kind of people, God brings together when he builds a church, okay? This is Paul's testimony, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, he didn't hang on a physical cross, a tree, with Jesus at the same time. He's not talking physically here, he's talking Figuratively, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, a church, a church built by God, is an assembly. It is a congregation of people who have that primary characteristic. Who they was, who they were, who they were has been crucified. That old man, that way of thinking, those desires, those dependences, the things that they trusted in, dead. Don't think that way anymore. Don't desire that way anymore. Don't trust that way anymore. A new person spiritually, has come to life, and that person is dependent on Christ alone. That person is dedicated to Christ alone. That person is devoted to Christ alone because of what Christ did for that person on the cross. That's who Paul was. I live by faith in the Son of God. That's it. That's the description of my life. And that's a congregation built by God. Paul's going to show us a whole lot more about a true church, what it is, what it should do. But I can't think of a better starting place for this study, especially in our church environment today. An environment where so much of the church is trying to attract people and grow itself around all kinds of new or improved religious features. Like, a non-traditional church building where you get rid of the steeple and you get rid of the pews and you you have chairs and, and you just dress it up very differently. Or an exciting movement. One particular thing that identifies this group of people and it's an, an exciting movement that's new or, or different than years gone by. Or a particular doctrine. Not all the teaching of Jesus Christ, but a particular doctrine. This is what we're all about and so... People come just for this particular doctrine. Or a really cool image. 
church is not stuffy anymore. This is not your grandparents' church. This is a, this is a cool image. Or maybe it's a particular translation. We, we preach only from this English translation, and so people are drawn because of that. Or maybe there's an entertaining preacher. I mean, he's got a way of captivating people when he, when he preaches. Or maybe it's great musicians and a particular style of music. Or maybe there's a particular social cause that this local church is all about. Or maybe there's a common ethnicity that, that everybody at this church shares in common. Invariably, when you, have a, when you have a group that is built on those features, you've got countless people who think they are part of a church, and they think they are good with God because they participate, or at very least, they identify with a group that's built around one or several of those shared religious features. But folks, that's not called out. That's not set apart by God. That's just like every other man-made religion. It's faith in self, or faith in works, or faith in religion, or faith in faith, faith in something, but it's not faith in Christ alone. When God calls someone out, He shows him how wrong he's been. And He moves that person to abandon faith in anyone or anything else to fix him. When God makes a saint, he sets him apart to Jesus and makes him desperate for Jesus. He makes him utterly dependent on Jesus alone to fix him. And when God builds a church, he brings together a bunch of Jesus-desperate and Jesus-dependent people who want to be Jesus-devoted people. That is a congregation of saints. I'm going to put it up here on the screen for you, and I want you to write this down. I want you to put it somewhere that you don't forget it. There's all kinds of groups out there called churches, all kinds of people who call themselves a church, but the primary characteristic on which that congregation is built is not this. A church built by God is a congregation of people that God has called out and set apart. And he has made them to be Jesus-desperate, Jesus-dependent people who want to be Jesus-devoted. I'm not saying they are every second of every day, but they want to be. That is a congregation of saints. Now here's the question. Is that Rosemont? If Paul had lived with us for two and a half years, then left and went somewhere else and wrote a letter back to us, would he address us as he addressed this group in Ephesus? Would he say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Winston-Salem, faithful in Christ Jesus? You think he would? Would he have seen in those two and a half years that we are a group of people who are Jesus-desperate, Jesus-dependent, and Jesus-devoted? Not just people who professed it at one time, but live it. Is that what he would have seen in our group? And let me get even more specific. Is that you? Individually? 
personally. Is that you? Why are you here? I wish I could be sitting next to you right now and just say, why are you here? (laughs) But really, why are you here? Why do you come on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights? What's your reason for coming to to, to this group, to, to this place, this group? Why? What makes you think you are a part of the church? Is it that you show up here on Sunday mornings and this is called a church, so you're part of the church? Or do you see that you've been called out and set apart to faith in Jesus alone as your life? Not just a profession you made two decades ago, the day before they baptized you. Not just that. But as your life, you've been called out, set apart to faith in Jesus alone. Folks, men don't make a church. God does. If it's a true church, it's all his work, not man's work. He alone has the authority and the power to call out and set apart and gather people to Jesus. Our job is to hold the spotlight on Jesus alone. Not let anybody or anything else in that spotlight. Jesus alone. And then we pray that God will draw people to Jesus alone. That's a church. That's the introduction to where we're going in three weeks. Keep reading the book of Ephesians. Paul is describing what a church is much, much more. What a church is and what a church is to do. And I'm anxious to dive in deeper with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As, as, as I say so often, I'm just so grateful that you haven't left us alone. Left us alone to our own imaginations, our own opinions, our own conclusions, our own devices, our own, um, our own methods to, to try to be a church and build a church and attract people to a church. We see what happens when men push to the side what you've given us so that they can take their own pathway to that. We see what is passed off as churches these days. And with a little bit of inspection, you find out that that's not something you built. That's something men are trying to build. Father, that scares me as a pastor. I I don't want that for this congregation. I want to be able to stand in front of you someday and with confidence say, I just tried to do it your way. Kevin and I were just reading your word and trying to listen to what you say about a church and and follow you. We won't do it perfectly, even with your word. We won't do it perfectly, but that's what we want. So thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to the church at Ephesus. Thank um, Thank you for the man who wrote it after spending two and a half years with them and watching what you do when you build a church. And Father, as we go further and deeper into this letter, I pray that you will make very clear what are the characteristics of a church you build, and then I hope, oh, I hope that as we examine ourselves, we see those characteristics. No, not perfected yet. We're, we're not, nowhere near that, but, but those characteristics are there in part, and we're working on them. We want them. We want them to be developed, and we're praying for you to, dev- to develop them more and more and to bring people to, to search after those very same things. That's, that's what we want, Father, because that's your will for the church. 
That's the message that should go out into this world about what your church looks like and how your church acts. So help us as we get into this study. Help me to, to see what you have already written, what you have already preserved for us to know and to present it to your people in a way that is very clear and understandable. And all of this so that your son, who is the head of the church, will be seen as he is in all of his glory and will be worshipped and praised and served and obeyed because of it. And I pray all of this in his name. Amen.